Hey everybody, and welcome to episode three of Untucking the Past with me, your host, Dr. Lady J. And this episode is entitled The Rise of Alternative Drag 50 Years Ago. So uh, sit back and we're going to maybe do a little bit longer episode today because we have got a ton of stuff to get through because I am really, really excited. I know everybody else probably has noticed if you're a drag fan and you're a fan of alternative drag, which I'm guessing is why a lot of you are probably tuning into this episode. You're aware that uh, Dragula Season 3 has just come out, but what I wanted to talk about today is how did we get to a place like Dragula? Because I think a lot of people have this idea that there was, you know, sort of female illusion, female impersonation drag, and there was Divine for a long time. And maybe you've heard of Peaches Christ, or maybe a few others that are sort of alternative or a little bit different. But what I think most of you aren't aware of is that there is a long tradition of this that goes back at least about 50 plus years. So where we're going to start with today is around uh, the 1960s, and we're going to start by looking at a whole bunch of different things. But before we do that, there's a few things I wanted to address just at the top of the podcast today. First and foremost, I want to say thank you so much to all of my Patreon subscribers. There are three of you right now, but we have people donating at the highest level and the lowest level and the medium level. And that has helped me tremendously to actually be able to take some time off for a day and focus on editing and working on this podcast. And I hope you'll be able to see the results in this episode, especially in the latter half, with the kind of editing I've been able to do as far as integrating clips and making this a little bit more like a documentary and a little bit less like a classroom. So I don't know if you want your full names read or not, but to Devin, Jamie, and Cassandra, thank you so, 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 so much for being the first monetary supporters of this podcast. That means more to me than I can possibly express that there are people out there who believe in this enough and what I'm doing here enough to monetarily support it and help me make this education more public, faster, and more accessibly. And so we can keep this podcast free forever. And also, if there's anybody else out there, my Patreon is at patreon.com slash untucking the past. There are rewards at every level of all different kinds. So if you are interested in supporting the podcast in that way, please check out patreon.com slash untucking the past and go ahead and hit that subscribe button and choose whatever donation level you like. Or if anybody wants to donate and they don't want to do it on a subscription-based basis, you can also always send me money at PayPal at jrd117 at case.edu. But aside from the money, I also just want to say thank you to everyone out there who's been listening, rating, and reviewing. The the fact that I have 13 ratings with an overall five-star review, and I have several reviews on there that are really, really kind and very sweet, I really incredibly appreciate all of the support, you all. I cannot express what this means to me as someone who has wanted to put this podcast together for nearly a decade now. So just thank you from the bottom of my heart. I also do want to quickly mention that Untucking the Past now has a Facebook like page. So please go over there and hit the like button at facebook.com slash untucking the past. And the second thing after talking about that that I wanted to address is more of just a general aside. I know the narratives I'm constructing here are often uh, sort of very specifically American and also very specifically drag queen focused. I want to 
I haven't really had any complaints, but it's something that bothers me. And I just want to make it clear that that is not a matter of choice per se, uh, but rather an issue of what's available and what I was able to do over the last 10 years as one person who was trying to put together one very specific history and ended up with a lot of larger stuff from starting from a place of when I started my dissertation, I thought I'd do about 100 years of drag history. And then I thought I'd do about 60. And then we narrowed it down to about 30-ish. So I have a lot of stuff left over. And unfortunately, for a lot of that time, there wasn't much writing about kings. Um, What was out there wasn't necessarily um, a lot of it reliable. Very difficult when there's not a lot of voices in the conversation to know if you're really getting an accurate conversation. And it's hard to want to put together a history when you feel like Um, Not that many voices are represented. So that said, I am going to be doing episodes in the future on drag kings, on non-binary drag, which we're going to get to a ton of things that don't exactly fit into the idea of, um, you know, female illusion or male illusion or female impersonation or male impersonation kind of drag today. So at any rate, the other thing I wanted to add to that is um, part of the reason why I'll be talking about kings a lot less um, over the course of this, and hopefully that will change, um, is because kings also have in many ways a separate history. Not that the two haven't been connected in some way, but that they have literally come up through different spaces, and that a lot of times there's a lot of slippage in identity. It's hard enough to really classify whether someone's a trans woman or a drag queen if they're trans and they're a performer in the 70s just because of the language that people were using including the people themselves because the way that we talk about transness or the way that we talk about drag was not laid out the way that it is now uh you're probably gonna see a lot of that today as we look at some of the andy warhol candy darling jackie curtis holly woodlawn uh stuff that we're gonna be looking at today but also the reason why king history is difficult is because there's not really a fully recognizable lineage quite yet from what we know of male impersonation in the 1800s and early 1900s and all and what we know of kings that have come around much more in the latter half of the 20th century and a lot of that really what we know about kings so most of the stuff that's been written has been written since the 90s because there was a huge rise in kings during the 90s as part of a wave of movements artistic academic and otherwise uh, around reconstructing and deconstructing gender so We'll be looking at a lot of those things over time, and especially since I have a book review coming out of Just One of the Boys, Female-to-Male Cross-Dressing on the American Variety Stage in the Journal of American Musicological Society uh, in just a few months, you can bet we'll be looking at some Drag King stuff. Okay, so that said, uh, I want to jump right into this episode. So I think one of the things that I really want to hammer home in this episode is this idea that, you know, when we're taught about so many things, as I keep talking about in this podcast, we're kind of taught them from, well, not kind of, we are exclusively taught most of the time these things from a heterosexual uh, cisgender perspective. So that includes the hippies. I think probably the first person who was even vaguely honest about what the hippies were like uh, was my college rock and roll professor in undergrad, Wendell Werner, who did point out that, uh, you know, a lot of people might have fooled around with their sexuality in ways that they wouldn't have normally. There was some slippage because of the free love and orgiastic kind of experiences. So, you know, if, uh, you know, when you're all rolling around in the mud, who knows who's banging who? That sort of thing. 
But I think it's also even more important to remember that not just straight people were suddenly being like, hey, maybe we can try a little something else. But also queer people were incredibly, incredibly significant as part of the the countercultural movement of the 1960s. I think it's really important to remember as we're looking into what we're going to be going towards today, people like Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, who were openly queer people, you know, just before this and during the 1960s. Uh, Allen Ginsberg, on top of all of his literary accomplishments, also helped Timothy Leary realize that psychedelic drugs should be helped to use to help the masses, not just society's elite and best artists, which was actually what Timothy Leary originally wanted to do. So uh, I think that kind of idea of bringing the sort of breaking down of barriers that goes along with psychedelia and in many, on, uh, almost all cases that we're going to look at today, uh, taking psychedelics at the same same time, there's a breaking down of barriers between I, about ideas of gender. There are breaking downs of barriers of what a family is, what life is supposed to be, what our roles are in society. So everything starts to get questioned, except, of course, you know, let's be real. Despite the advances of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, the 1960s is also a time where we start to see new laws being put in place to segregate without using the words of segregation. The same way that, you know, many of the towns that we live in, especially bigger cities, are divided along street lines, railroad tracks, etc., between the quote-unquote black side of town or the white side of town. So, at any rate, queer people were were part of this newly emergent counterculture and created their own communes, just like many of the hippies did in San Francisco in Haight-Ashbury. And as we've seen in previous episodes, queer folks were dealing with a ton of the same issues the rest of America was, like we were just talking about. Racism, the clampdown of post-World War II conformity when men came home from war to women running the whole country, seemingly not in so much need of men. There was suddenly a clampdown on anything that didn't fit the mold of the white heterosexual nuclear family. Everybody was supposed to get back in line, go back where they're supposed to go. Women were supposed to go back into the kitchen. Gays were supposed to go wherever the hell they'd been before and queer folks were trying to get rid of the same sexual hang-ups that the rest of America's free love folks were but also trying to shed the bullshit they'd all been taught by a world that deemed queer folks of all kinds mentally ill correctable through horrifying cure methods and it was a world that was unimaginably cruel to trans people as we will see so also like much of the counterculture this new drag was about tearing down old conventions and barriers to access giving artistic expression beyond glamour beauty or comedy at the same time this is when drag begins a long feedback loop with the other art forms. Suddenly, music and drag are influencing one another in ways they hadn't before. Drag and the visual arts are informing one another. Theater and drag are becoming united in a totally different way than they ever have before. The idea of drag aesthetics being based around female illusion and mimicry of celebrities seemed uh, to a lot of people kind of square and outdated in the counterculture where everyone is questioning gender. If every man has long hair, what does it mean to wear a wig? So, you know, and also when you're on acid and you're taking mushrooms and other hallucinogenics and or speed instead of alcohol. So remember, we talked about before in the other episodes how supper clubs were one of the biggest places for drag before and bars, right? So as we move from a world where the cocktail of choice is a literal cocktail to the cocktail of choice is speed and hallucinogenics or just hallucinogenics or just speed. But for a lot of people in these scenes, speed and hallucinogenics, that's going to change the way that people are looking at things and what they want out of things. 
So that's going to affect audiences and performers alike. Also, I want to say, that's not to say that Supper Club-style female illusion shows with big flashy costumes and headpieces and singing acts didn't still exist and do very well. It's just to say that almost out of nowhere, a new culture of drag emerges from the influence of theater, rock and roll, the visual arts, fashion, and the ideologies, lifestyles, influences, and drugs of the counterculture. And... I want to preface today's information by saying what I'm talking about is, I'm sure, only a small slice of what we could find out about many other drag counterculture scenes if records to drag shows everywhere were more easily accessible or accessible at all. So my narrative sticks pretty closely to New York and San Francisco for now, but hopefully down the line we can start talking about how to fill in the gaps around the knowledge I've put together from the sources I've looked at at the last decade or so. And again, I am always looking for feedback, thoughts, anything that someone could help to add to a story. Do you think there's someone that I've left out? I would love to bring those things up in next episodes. So that's kind of the overview that I want you to have going into today's episode. So that said, the first person I want to jump into today, because I want to kind of get the people that are major players in the overarching story out of the way, but who aren't necessarily people that we think of as traditionally part of the um, sort of canon of drag history in the way that we do someone like Divine, especially for alternative underground drag. So let's take a look at some of the performers who changed all these things in the 60s and 70s. The first of whom I want to look at is Lindsay Kemp. I was doing a little show at a tiny theater of St. Martin's Lane. And uh, David Bowie was in the audience one night as a 19-year-old boy. He came to my dressing room and uh, he was like the Archangel Gabriel standing there. I was like, you know, Mary. I didn't fall on my knees (laughs) at that time. And uh, it was love at first sight. He expressed the desire to work with me, to learn from me. And at the time I was teaching dance classes at the dance centre in Covent Garden, so he enrolled the following day. He told me that uh, he'd met me just in time because he was on his way up to Scotland. He'd been studying Buddhism for several years, quite seriously, and was considering uh, taking his vows and becoming a monk. He did declare later on, well, Lindsay saved me from having my head shaved. And quitting the business, was that Oh, and quitting the business. Mm. Yeah, he wasn't getting anywhere. He was certainly a multifaceted, a chameleon, a splendid, a shining, always inspired creature. I mean, a genius of a creature. But I did show him how to do it. So, Lindsay Kemp is a mime. He was a possible lover of David Bowie's. Certainly one of Bowie's most important teachers. Bowie met him in 1967 uh, when he enrolled in the London Dance Center. And Bowie took enormous inspiration from him. And any study of Bowie's art uh, includes his time with Lindsay Kemp, whose imagery and movement influenced him tremendously. Kemp's mime was incredibly queer, as was his makeup, costuming, and movement. His most famous production and creation was uh, a production called Flowers, which you can find the entire the entirety of on YouTube very easily if you just type in Lindsay Kemp. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-K-E-M-P. 
Flowers was pu- was produced in 1974. Uh, it was a music and mime show based on Jean Genet's Our Lady of the Flowers, in which uh, Lindsay Kemp plays the character of Divine. This is not the same Divine as we think of with John Waters, but a character based on someone from Jean Genet's Our Lady of the Flowers. The show was extremely queer, featuring masturbating prisoners disrupted by the entry of Kemp's angelic character Divine. The production toured all over the world for years, and Kemp performed in Bowie's Ziggy Stardust shows in London. Now, there's two reasons he's important to our story. Number one is that he's part of the narrative I'm trying to show of how the other art forms started using drag, and not in the traditional disguise for the purposes of escape or something like that, but rather this was mime that was informed by queer sex and eroticism, but also plastered in white pancake foundation that was a precursor to the white face looks of the sisters of perpetual indulgence but even more so of klaus nomi Uh, but it was also mime that showed drag itself could be turned to other purposes than glamour illusion and spectacle and number two his influence on bowie circles back on the worlds of queer performance art music drag and nightlife in general as you can read about in my dissertation you can read about bowie's influence on these worlds and how that came from a queer place and how that queerness that david bowie copies from the queer world then becomes something the queer world copies from david bowie and this sort of bizarre feedback loop uh and again there's like a basically a whole chapter about that so I'm not going to go into it too deeply here because this also isn't an episode about David Bowie and drag. So, yeah. So, Lindsay Kemp brought about this idea along with others of using drag in other artistic fields, but also using drag that wasn't about impersonation of a celebrity, that wasn't about creating a a real um, illusion of a woman. It was about creating this character persona. Um, it was white face and eyeshadow and, and red cheeks. Again, you can see the whole thing on YouTube. But this is what we're going to see throughout these sort of alternative drag scenes. So moving on from Lindsay Kemp, because um, I just kind of want that to be in the background and as a reference that you can go and do a little bit more research. Probably the toughest nut to crack in this whole bunch is Charles Ludlum. Charles Ludlum started off in the Theater of the Ridiculous performing in plays by uh, Ronald Tavel, who had screenwritten for Andy Warhol in Chelsea Girls in 1966 and several of his other underground films. And Charles Ludlam helped run the troupe alongside John Vaccaro. So this theater of Ridiculous countered the idea of realism. So the idea of like the kind of glamour drag that we think of or female impersonation or female illusion um, was not what they were trying to do. This was about surrealism. Um, this was about ridiculousness. Um, and Charles Ludlum eventually goes off on his own and forms his own theater of the ridiculous. And Ludlum deeply affected the work and aesthetics of downtown drag for generations with major players like Charles Bush, Ethel Eichelberger, uh, Klaus Nomi, and many others performing with his troupe in the early stages of their careers. Ludlum remains absent from a lot of the lists of major drag performers. I think part of this may be the issue that upon seeing the works of people who were inspired by him, he was very dismissive of them. And he's also distanced himself from the term drag a lot, even though uh, he is incredibly influential on the drag world. Ludlum's primary influence on queer artists and drag came from his way of 
becoming the most extraordinary characters from theater and literature like Cleopatra and Camille without attempting any or feigning even any attempt at realism in passing for these female characters. Instead, he would, you know, go on stage with no wig and chest hair, but also play these um, not to a, a sense of comedy, even though we hear the word ridiculous here, we shouldn't necessarily think of comedy. Ludlum's approach to acting allowed for these heart-rending moments of emotionality that came off as anything but trite or saccharine or overly sweet within the context of some of the most absurd mixtures of high and low references um, where all culture, both pop culture and high culture, uh, quote unquote, you know, legitimate, the the quote unquote legitimate theater or classical music, uh, opera, uh, literature, that sort of thing, where that would be colliding with pop culture and that sort of thing as material for camp collage. But like I said, um, unfortunately, Ludlum tends to get suppressed somewhat, uh, I think, because of his own attitudes. Ludlum was really, really influential, especially on Charles Bush, who also performed in his troupe. Charles Bush, if you're not aware, is an incredible playwright, also has made several films like Die, Mommy, Die, and Psycho Beach Party, both of which came out, I think, in the mid-90s. So Charles Bush's career started on his own in an off-Broadway play he wrote and produced and directed called Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, which is often cited as an obvious descendant of Ludlum's works. But when Ludlum saw this production, saw this production, uh, he was infuriated and his biographer... David Kaufman writes that the, that he left the performance, quote, griping that superficial elements of his work had been stolen, but without any of their substance. Work like Bush's and the wide array of cabaret bad boy drag that would come to characterize much of downtown theater possessed an easy camp and glitter that lacked the more serious intentions underlying those ingredients when employed by himself. And I think Ludlum's hostility expressed here and in many other accounts including from Charles Bush himself, may aid in explaining why his work has been less adequately accounted for historically than it deserves. So the next thing I want to talk about is the Coquettes, formed in December of 1969 in San Francisco and led by a drag queen named Hibiscus. They were the first kind of like bearded drag queens. They were like hippie acid freak drag queens, which was really new at the time. It still would be new. People really express themselves through their look. Whatever you came out with, everyone said, yes, let's have more. And that's what everyone did with each other. We were freaks. I mean, most of us were gay, but no one thought that much of gender. Gender confusion. That was the whole point. Far out. You couldn't tell if it was men or women. It was straight people, too. It was complete sexual anarchy which is always a wonderful thing. The Cockettes' looks were unlike anything that anyone had ever seen in drag up to this point. Before this, again, you know, when we look back at, like, the first episode when we're looking at the 60s, or the second episode when we're looking at the 60s, you know, the mainstream of drag at this point is very much glamour and female impersonation or illusion. It's all about passing, as a cisgender woman, uh, usually one of opulent wealth or uh, celebrity impersonation or something specific like that, 
unless it was distinctly a comedy number. And even then, you still didn't get as many of like the uh, sort of blacked out teeth, trailer trash kind of comedy looks that you even think of being still around today, but even more prevalent in the 90s or early 2000s. And the Cockhead's looks basically were everything from basically the entire troupe who lived in this commune together called Cauliflower that was one of the many communes in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. And the commune was run according to strict principles that actually came from a, a Christian commune that had existed in New England called uh, the Oneida something or other. I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, so they they ran their lives out of a commune and they also performed as a troupe, all the, many of the people or most of the people who lived in this house. Now, the people who lived in this house were also not just queer people, but, you know, as John Waters said in the clip that we were just listening to, you know, it was sexual and gender anarchy, essentially. So there are straight people, there are gay people, there are all different inflections of gender and sexuality along the spectrum represented within the house. But also there is uh, one overriding person, Irving Rosenthal, who was the person who ran the house. But uh, Hibiscus, once he entered the commune, gets them to start performing. They end up, they dress in, you know, all kinds of crazy colorful wigs, all kinds of uh, beads, glittering beards, huge eyelashes, um, all the kind of things that we think of as like very much alternative drag today. Uh, it's, it's hard to really encapsulate their entire look, but I would strongly suggest just go and look at any of the, um, the Cockettes YouTube clips or just Google the Cockettes and you'll see a bunch of different things. So the Cockettes also were part of the anti-establishment, uh, nature of the counterculture And part of what they did was they performed for free or for very minimal amounts of money, uh, which also eventually split them along sort of ideological lines, and they splintered into different groups later on. One being the Angels of Light. Uh, Eventually, there was a variation that was a spinoff in Seattle called Z-Wiz Kids. And there were two different branches of the Angels of Light, one in San Francisco and one in New York when Hibiscus went off on his own. Uh, well, that was the New York chapter. But so at any rate, this group gets uh, massively popular in San Francisco. They go from just sort of um, part of what's really important to remember, even before you look at anything about them, is that they were very much based in the, the idea of happenings, the living theater, the theater of the ridiculous, based out of John Vaccaro and like with Charles Ludlam. So their performances were not highly structured or rehearsed. There was often original music written for them, but there was also a lot of songs that were um, variations on or covers of old uh, Broadway songs or familiar tunes, old show tunes. But their performances were extreme camp, lots of nudity, really a lot of chaos, but a whole, the whole idea being of turning the whole world upside down in a lot of ways. But as the Cockheads grew bigger and bigger audiences and celebrities in San Francisco started to see them, Truman Capote wrote this glowing review that blows everything up. There was this huge reaction uh, and they went off to New York. And when they went to New York to do a three-week run of shows, there was much 
to do. The Village Voice was covering it. There were all sorts of media outlets covering their arrival in New York. All these celebrities like Andy Warhol and Angela Lansbury and all these famous people came to their first major performance. But fortunately, New York was not quite ready for the live-in psychedelic acid trip of unstructured nature that was what they were putting on display. And I think that's also part of why they have disappeared out of drag history for a long time, despite being extremely influential. And really, these are like the first major bearded queens that we ever see and probably the most influential of them. And yet, I think you you would be hard pressed to find a lot of bearded king, uh, sorry, bearded queens who would even be aware that hibiscus existed. That's no flaw to the queen. That's just uh, a flaw to the way that history has been laid down. But there's plenty more to say about the coquettes, and we could certainly do an entire episode, and I may on them at some point. But uh, I do have a ton of things to cover in order to cover the ground of just how we lay out alternative drag. But essentially, the major points that I want you to take home from the coquettes is that they were a group that didn't segregate based on even sexual orientation or gender identity or gender presentation. They were a group that operated on communistic principles, however problematic those may have been at times, which there are plenty of accounts you can read of what it was like to live in the Cockett house or listen to. There's a good book that I am just now starting to read uh, called Flights of Angels, My Life with the Angels of Light by uh, Adrian Brooks. And um, that talks a lot about how the split occurred and then what happens after that. But that's way deeper than we're going to be diving today. So yeah, so they operate on these communistic principles. They're the first time that we really get to see drag that isn't about trying to pass as a woman in any way or impersonate a celebrity or something like that. It's just about creating visual beauty. Many people thought that Hibiscus in his giant wigs and glittering beard and the way he looked many people in the film you'll see compare him to uh, like a jesus-like figure again you'll see how some of those things play out in a negative way and sometimes play out in a positive way if you watch the documentary but that said they went to new york and uh when they performed there it was not a success angela lansbury walked out uh which was followed by andy warhol walking out And they pretty much collapsed very quickly. Now, granted, they didn't have a lot of time to rehearse. They had to double the size of all their stage props and things for a larger stage within a space of six days after arrival. And these weren't people who were great at organizational things to begin with. You know, when you're tripping balls on acid constantly, that's uh, not going to be something that you're great at. But needless to say, this group was incredibly significant in the long haul as far as one of the many things that helped drag shift away from the old school traditions of glamour and illusion and celebrity impersonation. So now that I've brought him up, I want to turn our attention now to New York and the era of Andy Warhol. But I want to, before we go into the full on Andy Warhol, I want to talk a little bit about someone who I think gets represented way too little in drag history and trans history, which is Jane County. Jane County was part of the Andy Warhol factory, but she was not one of the film superstars. She started off in performing in Jackie Curtis's plays at La Mama. 
that were influenced by the theater of the ridiculous. And in those plays was Patti Smith also. And Jane then went on to star in the stage production of Pork, which was an Andy Warhol production, and went on to be sort of one of the people who was generally around as part of the factory, involved in a lot of the photos and a lot of the other things that went along with that. But what Jane, even more importantly, I think it should be remembered for and honored for right now as one of our living drag and trans legends is her place as a punk rock pioneer our first real like trans rock and roller that i'm aware of and drag rock and roller jane county was punk before punk was punk and what could be more punk than a trans woman leading a rock band A transsexual feeling It's hard to be true To the one that's really you I got a scandalous feeling It's hard to be true When they point and stare at you Jane's lyrics and stage presence were so much more than anything that we had seen before um, as far as drag or trans entertainment in the world of rock and roll. Rock and rollers had always been uh, sort of playing with gender since the earliest days of even rock and roll's predecessors. But Jane's trash, glamour, trans, drag aesthetic actually went on to influence tremendously important people like David Bowie, possibly the New York Dolls, and a ton of the no-wave generation in New York, and many, many more. Jane has also been a huge trans activist. She was part of the Stonewall Riots. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, like I keep reiterating throughout each of these episodes, to continuously contextualize the information that we're talking about within the larger sphere. So this Andy Warhol stuff, the Cockette stuff that we're looking at, everything that we're looking at today is happening around the same time, late 60s, early 70s, as just before and just after Stonewall. So the world that we're looking at, we have to remember the place of queer people, the understanding of trans people even on a personal level, as far as trans people understanding and having the language to describe their experience, is extremely different than what we have now. But I put Jane at the front end of the Warhol story because I think she's really the best narrator of this entire experience. So I want to let her do a little of the talking about what the Warhol scene was like. Because I think Jane's perspective is really unique. It never seemed to me when you watched the older interviews that Jane bought into the factory in the same way that Jackie Curtis or Holly Woodlawn or Candy Darling did in being reliant upon the fame construct 
directed by Andy Warhol's films. Because since she wasn't a part of that and she went off and did her own thing with rock music for the most part, she provides a really unique narratorial perspective to this entire scene that was happening around this time. And she's really good at tying in how the larger things in rock and roll and culture were being affected by drag and trans performers. So let's just give a little listen to what she has to say about the Warhol scene. Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground, they kind of opened up a whole new space for punk rock to follow. They pioneered a trail for us all to go down because it was a new way of perceiving art and music. Basically, there was a lot going on outside of the Warhol scene that eventually came into the Warhol scene because Andy was surrounded by people who kept their eye open for interesting people, for instance. I mean, like Candy Darling, Jackie Curtis, you know, Hollywood Long. There had to be somebody who saw them and brought them to Andy's attention. And that's where Max's Kansas City and the back room of Max's came into play. When somebody in the back room started to become really well-known, it was almost as if Warhol was almost using the back room as some kind of audition room for his superstars. Jackie Curtis would be speeding out on speed back in back then, putting make, orange makeup on to cover her beard. Hollywood Lone would be back there on dance. Candy would be back there looking gorgeous. Of course, Andy is going to notice all this. And, 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 and a lot of people did go to the back room on purpose to say, I'm going to the back room of Max's. I'm hoping to be discovered by Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol was like the Cecil B. DeMille of New York City at that time. Jackie Curtis was a freaky drag queen. She wrote a play called Femme Fatale, which is based on the Velvet Underground song. In fact, the opening scene of of Femme Fatale was, you know, based on uh, uh, a lot of the Velvet Underground's lyrics. Patti Smith played an Italian mafia man with a huge Greek phallic, and she would grab hold of her dick. Patti Smith would grab hold of her fake dick and she would say things like, Come here, mama mia, I want to fuck you. I want to fuck you with my big old dick a Come here, baby, let me fuck you with my big old dick. This is Patty Smith. And just to give you an idea of just how compacted this scene is with people who go on to do huge things, Patty Smith, who is, you know, rock and roll hall of famer, people have the power. She was also dating, strangely enough, Robert Maplethorpe at the time, who has done incredible work as a visual artist and a photographer and was the subject of a huge debate about funding in the arts coming from the government in the late 80s and early 90s. I'll let you look into that on your own. Just be prepared that the the Robert Maplethorpe images are obviously very adult-oriented and not safe for work. But I think you're starting to get the picture that around Andy Warhol, despite the fact that in a lot of ways, sure, some might call him a genius, but in a lot of ways, kind of an exploitative turd of a person who really had no problem taking whatever he could out of people, making them do the work, standing back and not doing much as um, a person directing the work or actually leading the work. So Warhol had obviously done the kind of pop art and Campbell's soup cans, uh, Marilyn Monroe, multicolored prints that you generally think of when you think of Andy Warhol or when we think of Andy Warhol 
and pop art. But Andy Warhol had also started to move from, uh, he'd done a photography series, which also has a lot of trans women. And unlike his films, features uh, black trans women like Marsha P. Johnson and Wilhelmina Ross. And then as he moves into the film world, he starts off by making films that are essentially moving single images so leaving the camera in one place and sort of observing so that those become sort of a still image that is informed by time if that makes sense or develops over time in front of your face but then as he moves into making films Andy Warhol always wanted to do things that were commercially and capitalistically successful. So Andy Warhol makes films on his own, and then eventually, when he decides to make more narrative films that are more traditional, not in any sense that we might think of other than form-wise, but um, he ends up uh, bringing a director on board, which is Paul Morrissey. And this is when we get all of the films that we think of as being the factory superstars that are the trans women's films. This is where we really see Holly Woodlawn and Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling. And essentially, the Andy's superstars operated on the same idea as the classic Hollywood star system. So basically where... Paramount Pictures or MGM or whoever would have basically a cavalcade of stars and those would be the people they would have contracted to use for all of their work. Now, in a lot of ways, Andy gets credit for using a similar system, but in a lot of ways, he also was, just like the original system, was extremely exploitative, so was Andy. So a lot of the people that we're talking about, like Candy and Jackie and Holly, these uh, trans women... Uh, well, two of them being Jackie, or sorry, Candy and uh, Holly being trans women who were also drag queens, and Jackie being a drag queen who whose gender as a person I think is um, probably up for debate to some degree. Uh, again, because the languages that we have now are so much different and more useful than what was available in the 70s and 80s and 60s. So I think Jackie in a lot of ways would be what people would think of as a non-binary person as we would conceive of it today. And that's not to say that no one identified as non-binary in the 70s. The original flag takes into account non-binary uh, people. But the idea that that language was commonplace or even used in the community in in a regular average setting uh, is not realistic. But as you heard Jane talking about, essentially Andy gathers these people from Max's Kansas City and sort of just the unusual people of downtown New York. And what we get with these movies is, uh, that the ones that we're looking at, is the way that trans women are used in these films is really kind of problematic. So, for instance, in the film Women in Revolt, which was in many ways a satire and a critique of the version of radical feminism that Valerie Solanas, who's also the person who attempted to murder Andy and did successfully shoot him, though didn't kill him, had laid out. Part of this satire and irony, unfortunately, plays on the idea that constantly that trans women are not women. And you can see a ton of this in even the trailer for Women in Revolt. Oh, I see politically involved girls. I don't suppose you've heard about women's liberation. Women's liberation has shown me just who I am and just what I can be. What do you think this thing is about women's liberation? To teach us to be free. 
They're going to think we're lesbians. No, they're not going to think we're lesbians. A school teacher and a model. Those are lesbians. Why is it we never see each other anymore since you joined Women's Liberation? I go to meetings. I got things to do. You're the one that's supposed to take care of this house. It's about time that women had some place, somehow, something to do. God damn it, we're tired of you fucking men. We're tired of being sex objects. I can't stand the sight of men. And if I can't make it with men, then I'll make it with women. A lot of the lines in these movies are improvised. So, again, these movies become really big in the underground film circuit. And... As the idea of these trans women and drag queens becomes a bigger and bigger thing, the idea of queer superstars is something that becomes incredibly influential on everything that happens after this Warhol era. And this Warhol era of the superstars is really what ultimately even ends up attracting RuPaul and Lady Bunny and Lahoma Van Zant and Larry T., and people that we'll talk about later on down the road when we get to sort of the rise of the Pyramid Club and the Club Kids and the 80s and 90s. Now, I don't want to stay with Warhol too long and uh, Jackie and Candy and Holly and Jane for too long because I still have a lot more that I want to get through in this episode. But I do want to really focus in for just a second on the way that these queens were treated because they were trans and as trans women in the scene. There's a tremendous earnestness in wanting to be another gender. I mean, what's more earnest than that? And naive. I mean, I think it's tremendously naive, especially a man who wants to be a woman. You know, I mean, keep your winning hand. I've been up all night, alone, wondering about my identity, trying to look for an explanation for living this strange, stylized sexuality. Realization cuts feeling off. I try to explain my identity as being a male who has assumed the attitudes and somewhat the emotions of a female. I don't know which role to play. A 25-year-old man who becomes a 25-year-old woman is not a woman at all because a woman first has to be a little girl. Okay, a man first has to be a boy. Candy was never a girl. Candy was a fantasy. She created herself. If you called Candy a he, it was a flinch. Like with me, if I hear he, it's a flinch. It's like someone slapping you in the face. You have to accept a transgender person's perception of what they are, or you are disrespecting their gender. And that is really wrong. And to those people that want to call Candy a he, you are a transphobe, and you shut your mouth. So even in these political spheres and artistic spheres where people were great friends with Candy and Holly and Jackie and Jane, this documentary that you just heard, Beautiful Darling, was made in 2010 or released in 2010. Fran Lebowitz is still considered like, you know, a uh, genius social commentator. She wrote for Interview Magazine. She was the first voice that you heard on there. The one who said that transgender people are naive and that trans women should keep their winning hand. This kind of lack of understanding of what the trans experience is, 
is something that was starting to take foothold at this point in the gay in the LGBTQ sphere. This is as queer people of all different types under the umbrella are trying to come together to fight for rights. At the same time, they're starting to have a lot of arguments about the fine details. And part of that is the unfortunate struggle where trans people fight for everyone's rights, as in the case of Marsha and Sylvia and Miss Major Griffin Gracie and Jane County, and the countless number of trans people who have fought for people's rights a zillion other times that we will be talking about a million times on this podcast, that despite that, trans women were still being rejected and misunderstood as men parading around as women. And in this way, drag and transness, this is why I get so bothered when people act like drag and transness are two things that really need to be separated out in terms of the drag. For someone who is just trans and is not a drag queen, that's fine. Separate it out. That makes sense. But in the drag world, for so many people in drag history and people who have written drag history to constantly say, well, these trans people aren't drag queens. I hope that what we will see, as we looked at in the first episode, as we saw with Crystal Abeja, who is trans, in the second episode, as we're looking at in this episode, we'll see that trans people have been here and have been fighting. Trans women are women. Um, I think a lot of the problems of dysphoria are amplified for a lot of people by the fact that um, everyone around them was also telling them, if you don't have a vagina, you're a man. And this is also around the time that we'll see the emergence of the roots of trans-exclusionary radical feminism. This idea of supposedly radical feminists who believe that trans women are invaders in women-only spaces. They'd be the same people that now you would say, uh, would say, oh, trans people are fine, but uh, as long as a trans woman uses the men's bathroom. So I'd like to think we're beyond that. And I'd like to have hoped that nearly 10 years ago when that film was made, you know, just before Lady Gaga puts the word transgender in a pop song, that someone as important and significant to this scene as Fran Lebowitz would maybe see things differently. But I think we're still lucky, at least, to have Jane County with us and still fighting for trans people and still making new songs like I Gender T that are all about transness still today. So there's a ton more that I could talk about with all of the superstars here, but I really want to move on today because we can do a whole other episode on that or any one of those individuals. But I think one of the last people I want to talk about today is, of course, Divine. Give me more questions. Divine, are you a lesbian? Yes, I have done everything. Does blood turn you on? It does more than turn me on, Mr. Vader. It makes me come. And more than the sight of it, I love the taste of it. The taste of hot, freshly killed blood. Could you give us some of your political beliefs? Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. Because of the rise of home cinema and the world of underground films and cult film followings, Divine became and has become a household name, one of the most recognizable drag queens in history, and really brought together a lot of the strands of the different things we're looking at. She also was, uh, in the movie The Coquettes, they say she was a part of The Coquettes for a little while. She did three plays with them, which is a lot, and she did sing uh, in Dressed in a Lobster costume while she was with The Coquettes. A crab on your anus means you're loved. But she and Sylvester, uh, who we'll talk about in just a a minute, were both just sort of people who drifted in and then kind of back out of the coquettes or worked with them for a short period. But Divine kind of brought the trash and glamour of the Warhol world 
the countercultural spirit and approach to drag from the coquettes and all of the things that John Waters brought to the table were also, you know, obviously a huge part of what makes Divine Divine. And John Waters was influenced by all kinds of underground film artists, most importantly, people like Kenneth Anger, Jack Smith, and others, of course. But these were queer filmmakers, and also he was obviously influenced by the world of Andy Warhol. And the fact that it is not a coincidence that John Waters, like Andy Warhol, uses a group of the same people in most of his films especially early on and those people were also his friends or people who were close acquaintances but John Waters modeled the Dreamlanders which is what he called them after the Warhol Superstar Factory so you have Mink Stoll you have Mary Vivian Pierce you have David Lockery you have obviously Divine and initially John Waters makes these films on very minimal budgets even once they get to Pink Flamingos we're still looking at the set for the uh, the trailer for instance was a uh, it was a $200. It was $100 to paint the inside and clean it up and $100 to buy the trailer itself. But John Waters' early films were mostly shorts starring all of these people. One of the first was Eat Your Makeup and, along with Mondo Trasho. And the first one that really gets a big following is Multiple Maniacs. You know it's all right. You know no one can hurt you. You know no one can even get near you. X-ray eyes now, and you can breathe fire. You can stomp out shopping centers with one step of your foot. You can wipe out entire cities with one blast of your fiery breath. You are a monster now, and only a monster can realize the fulfillment I am capable of feeling. Oh, divine! It's so wonderful to feel this far gone. This far into one's own depravity. I'm a maniac. Oh, a maniac that cannot be cured. Oh, divine. Oh, I am divine. Oh. This and John Waters' other early films were in part propelled by John's brilliant use of censorship and the attempt to control what was happening with his shows by the authorities as a launching point for getting people's attention. You know, a lot of people have said, and I, I believe John has said as well, that his movies would never have been as successful as they were had it not been for the Maryland Censor Board. So when we think about how Divine compares to the other things we've looked at today, so with Warhol, we have alternative drag in the sense that it's not drag that's taking place on a stage with singing or lip syncing. It's drag that's used in an ironic and satirical way. And then when we look at the Coquettes, and the Theater of the Ridiculous and Charles Ludlam, we start to see all these layers of gender being turned on its head and sort of gender anarchy in a lot of ways and upending the idea that drag is about crossing over some barrier and that there is a clear barrier to be crossed. Really trying to use that countercultural notion of questioning gender as a source for new material and new ways of using drag and utilizing drag. And Divine and John Waters take this to a whole new step. So, as I said before, you know, this kind of supper club drag and, at you know, normal nightclub uh, gay bar drag is still going on, the lip syncing and the singing. And I think it's important to think about how Divine fit into that at the time. She is a fat woman. So rather than covering up her fat, we throw it out. And, you know, fat is sex. Um, 
I mean, even if you know, it goes beyond gender or whatever, rather than concealing fat, there it is, you know. It is beautiful, um, depending on how you want to look at it. With the Jane Mansfield influence, very 50s it was, certainly, the, the fishtail gown and all that kind of stuff. And Clarabelle was a huge influence. My first puppet show thing. The mouth, you see how he looks in Multiple Maniacs. Um, it's very much sometimes like Clarabelle. And it's Clarabelle and Jane Mansfield put together to frighten. I wanted people to run when they saw the bunny, like Gorgo. I mean, at the end of Multiple Maniacs, the, the National Guard shoots him. How much closer to Godzilla can you be? I wanted him to be the Godzilla of drag queens. I wanted other drag queens to run in tears. And other drag queens were so square then. They wanted to be Miss America, and they wanted to be Donald Trump. Basically, that were their values. And they hated Divine. Believe me. There wasn't a self-respecting drag queen from here to San Francisco that wanted anything to do with that look that there was. I mean, Divine was a terrorist, basically, a drag terrorist. So uh, drag queens thought, oh, my God, what is this? And then the straight people thought, oh, my God, what is this? So he was really right on out there as far as his look went. Divine essentially turns the traditional ideas of drag on their head. Instead of padding and corseting to make your body this perfect waspish 1950s shape, you would let your size show. Costumes would be shown to cut sort of almost around and under the belly so they emphasize it. Divine went against the emblems of poise or comedy and instead went for something horrifying and outrageous beyond any comparison before. She becomes these characters that are murderous, thieving, lying, disgusting, filthiest people alive competing to be the filthiest people alive in Pink Flamingos, and then in Female Trouble takes that to another level, pursuing the idea of fame and commenting on the idea of fame to the point of saying, you know, if I can become the mur- the most murderous, awful criminal possible, and if I can get the electric chair and kill people as art, then I've achieved all my goals. Now, these weren't the goals of Divine the Person, but Divine the Character created by John Waters in these movies. Divine the Person, known as Glenn Milstead outside of drag, is someone who uh, is a mild-mannered person who just does these characters as an actor. And of course, we can't move on without mentioning the most notorious moment in all of Divine's career. At the end of Female Trouble, when she really kind of, in a lot of ways, cements her place in history, uh, doing one of the most disgusting things on film that is now illegal to do on film, which is eating dog shit. And if you watch the movie Pink Flamingos, one of the very last things you'll see is Divine proving herself to be the filthiest person alive and following around an actual dog, which they followed around for three hours trying to record this scene and eventually had to give the dog an enema. So she had to sort of shove wet poop in her mouth. But that scene sort of cements that character and her place in history in a way that no other uh, subversive drag queen at this time was able to do. So the question becomes, how does Divine go from being this sort of fosterer of filth and disgusting to all, including drag queens, to becoming a household name? Well, part of that was establishing her as this punk rock, well, proto-punk, before punk, icon of filth and trash and anti-establishment and everything that the system wasn't. And these films were loved by people who loved the sort of art house films and the exploitation films of people like Russ Myers that they were both tributing and making fun of. Movies like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. 
where old drag in, versus the counterculture had started to look kind of square and stead and old and traditional in a world where people were looking for something the opposite of that, Divine became sort of a countercultural hero. But she doesn't become someone who is a household name or anything like that for quite a while. The next thing she does after these movies that's a, a huge jump that's going to lead us into the next person I want to talk about is Divine's music career. Turn around. Stand up like a man and look me in the eye. Turn around. Take one final look at what you've left behind. Then walk away from the greatest lover you have ever known. Yes, walk away. You're telling me that you can make it on your own. By yourself, all alone, without my help. Mister, you just made a big mistake. This and other songs that Divine did, like Shoot Your Shot, were really, really important in the next phase of dance music after disco supposedly died in the late 70s, which was basically really just a reaction to homosexuality and electronified rhythms and things like that. And that's a really complicated story that musicologists are still kind of fighting about. But... What's really important here is that, as far as music history goes, Divine is really important because this track that we just heard is one of the first that Stock Aitken and Waterman did, which are huge producers in the world of high-energy dance music of the 80s and 90s. They're the people who did You Spin Me Right Round with Dead or Alive, and even the people who did Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. So you can thank Divine for helping make Rickrolls happen in a kind of roundabout way, I suppose. <laughs> Divine's career in music doesn't make her instantly a household name, but it does lift her up another level of fame. So instead of just being underground film audiences or midnight movie audiences like we're developing for Rocky Horror, which I'd planned to talk about on this show, but there is not enough time today, Divine suddenly has this new crowd of people who are into this disco-sounding music. And these songs are a big part of what also gets her featured on late-night shows like David Letterman, where her and John Waters get a hugely extended interview, bringing them to living rooms across the country, bringing her inside people's homes who had never seen drag before, much less the kind of assaultive visuals of Divine compared to other drag queens. And she becomes sort of this underground, cool kind of figure, a little bit larger than she was before. But what really takes her to the next level is when she does the movie Hairspray with John Waters, which is John Waters' first sort of, you know, like PG rated movie. And we have limited time today, and there is so much information out there about Hairspray that I'm going to let you go ahead and take a look at that on your own, or we'll come back to that for another episode. But obviously, Hairspray takes Divine's fame to new audiences over and over and over again, reinvigorating her, re her legacy long after her death. Because people who are seeing the new Broadway musical, people who saw the movie, people who saw the live TV production of the musical are all now starting to find out where this movie came from, who Divine was. And for me, personally, seeing Divine as Edna Turnblad was one of the first times, along with Rocky Horror, that I remember watching VH1 at home at probably 10 or 11 and being like, what is the deal with that lady? I think that's a man. 
but what is going on? But she's not like a drag queen, like I thought of as a drag queen at the time, whatever conception I had. What we see in Edna Turnblad that we don't see in the other films is sort of really divine showing her skills as a character actor. And so instead of playing this over-the-top, completely off-the-wall characters like we've seen before, she plays a real human being that people can relate to, that an average person can see as a human character. And she's played as just, you know, a real person, somebody's mom. And so Hairspray takes her to a whole nother level. And right before she dies, she was actually supposed to be Uncle Otto on Married with Children. So I think Divine would have had a lot of opportunities to become even more famous and even more influential if she hadn't died from an enlarged heart at a young age. But, um, so Divine's legacy is tremendous and has affected drag in ways that, in ways that will never be undone. But it was our last performer today who the earliest made the biggest impact on the mainstream and national level achievements for uh, drag and queer performers. And that person is Sylvester. Sylvester became a superstar through hits like this and Do You Want to Funk and tons of others. But Sylvester started off from a totally different place before he arrived at this disco era in the late 70s and early 80s. So when we look back to the beginning of the episode of the Coquettes, Sylvester was one of the early members of the Coquettes before the split, before they went to New York or anything like that. He had grown up in a household that when he came out as gay, rejected him. And also he claims it was... Was, uh, consensual, but he was sexually assaulted by his youth minister in church at the age of eight. And by the age of 13, his church had made him into a pariah for the fact that he was gay rather than helping him deal with what was going on between him and clearly a much older youth director. Despite all odds, Sylvester getting thrown out at 13 ends up finding his own group of other young trans people and gay people that were all black and formed what are were called the discotes or disquotes. I'm not sure. It's spelled D-I-S-Q-U-O-T-A-Y-S. If somebody out there has more information or research that I don't have, um, I would love to know the correct pronunciation. So uh, he joins them for several years and then they eventually disband and eventually he moves away from Los Angeles where he was uh, homeless and he eventually goes to San Francisco and becomes part of the Coquettes. Now, according to his biography, um, when he initially joined the Coquettes, he thought that they didn't want him because he was black. And I think it's important to remember that even in something as progressive seeming as the Coquettes, there were still issues of race. 
before Sylvester joined the Cockettes, there were only two members of the Cockettes that were black, which was Reggie and Lyndon. And Lyndon and Reggie uh, referred to themselves and when Sylvester joined as the Chocolate Cockettes. People like Fayette Hauser in some of the interviews about Sylvester or any of these things talked about how each person was seen as an individual to sort of talk about, you know, it sounds a lot like people who talk about not seeing race. It's kind of something that sounds great, but is actually bullshit and really problematic because people's experiences are totally different based on how they're treated by the world, regardless of however you would like to pretend to see them. You do see what exists and what exists also exists inside of a system that's created that is based around persecuting people of color. So I think it's important to remember that even in something like the Coquettes, even someone who is as amazingly, incredibly talented as Sylvester, Sylvester didn't feel totally at home with them ever. He lived with them for about a year, and then he moved out on his own with a couple of other Coquettes. And after they went to New York and had that sort of terrible disaster of a show, he starts to pull away from them and distance himself and basically talks about how messy and unrehearsed what the Coquettes were doing and in interviews distancing himself from what they were doing following his own thoughts and the advice of his management. So Sylvester goes on to form several different music groups. One is the first one being Sylvester and the Hot Band. So even though we mostly think of Sylvester as a disco diva, Sylvester was performing more like something that sounds more like funk or rock and roll earlier. But even before the Hot Band, Sylvester was, when he was performing with the Coquettes, the Coquettes would do these you know, shows that had some sort of a cohesive concept behind them, but they were, you know, all these sort of show tunes and things like that, whereas Sylvester would come out and do solo numbers as a singer and do things like Billie Holiday songs or Josephine Baker type numbers in really beautiful outfits. But by the time he's with the hot band, he's uh, performing in his own variation of drag. But again, women's really glamorous clothing. Uh, You can look up the cover of the Sylvester and the Hot Band albums and kind of get an idea for what he's wearing at this time. So when Sylvester is with the hot band, the first uh, sort of large musical incarnation that he has outside of the Coquettes, he's producing music that sounds a lot more like straightforward funk or rock and roll. So compare the original of Neil Young's Southern Man, for instance. Versus Sylvester's cover of it as a black gay man. This song being about racism in the South. The song is not only funkier and with a better beat, but it also takes on a whole new level of meaning when recontextualized this way. (laughs) 
lot of these albums uh, from her early career have kind of been lost the sands of time as far as the popular notice. I think that, that people really should be listening to these albums. They're incredibly rich. I mean, just looking at these two examples, you can hear the difference between the Neil Young song, which is kind of, yes, it's known for being this big kind of protest song, but it's also kind of, um, it sounds like it's taking notice of something, making a note of something. Racism is bad. The second song takes that same song that Neil Young wrote and makes it into a plea, a wailing beg, someone imploring you to make change happen. So there's so much added by what Sylvester is doing here. So I just wanted to take a look at something like that before we move on to some of the bigger stuff with Sylvester uh, as we bring this podcast to a close. So Sylvester goes on through a few incarnations after this on a few different albums, but one of the things that really makes a huge difference is when he adds two backing singers, Martha Wash and Isora Rhodes. There were two white, tall females, blonde, leggy, who had just auditioned to him, and I came in and auditioned for him, and he said, okay, uh, and he dismissed the other girls and he asked me he said uh do you know of anybody else that's as large as you are and can sing and i said yes those two women became the super important backing group for sylvester and were known then a moniker that they came up with themselves as two tons of fun and after that they went on to do a solo act on the same record label at the same time as sylvester and they did a little song that you might be familiar with as one of the biggest gay anthems of all time. It's raining men. Hallelujah, it's raining men. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna let myself get absolutely soaking wet. It's raining men. I think it says a lot about Sylvester that even next to Martha Wash, Sylvester can still shine as the star. And Martha Wash is one of the most incredible singers that's ever been around. We could go into a whole other episode if this were a history of music thing instead of a history of drag thing about Martha Wash and how she was uh, literally not credited for being the voice in Everybody Dance Now or uh, several other big dance hits. And actually, she had to take on the, those companies and those production companies to win a lawsuit in order to make it so that now all vocalists have to be credited on albums. And that's the second time she'd been screwed, because even with as the Weather Girls, they also, which is what they called themselves after they were two tons of fun when they went out on their own, they were the Weather Girls, obviously, for It's Raining Men. But even after going out on their own, they got screwed in royalties, as did Sylvester, but getting back to my main point about Sylvester, Sylvester technically might not be considered a drag queen in the traditional sense, in the sense that Sylvester didn't call himself a drag queen and resisted the term a lot, actually. But Sylvester's lived experience within drag troops, performing on the same stages with drag people, and his influence on drag history, and I apologize, I think several times through this podcast I have used her pronouns for uh, Sylvester, and uh, I should be using he pronouns all the time for Sylvester, but sometimes it can be confusing with someone where it's not always, the pronouns are not always consistent for Sylvester. And again, things were different then versus now, and Sylvester died uh, from complications from AIDS in 1988, so we only have uh, whatever language or whatever that was left from before. But one of the things that I really want to point out when we are contextualizing 
him within the drag scene or as a drag performer or someone who affected drag performance, one of the things I really wanted to point out was that he was able to go mainstream during the 70s and late 80s. His later albums were nowhere near as successful as the disco era stuff like Do You Want to Funk and You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. But when he was with that record company at the height of his fame, he never ever let anything stand in the way of his identity as a gay black man, as a performer, and as a performer who was going to be that however he wanted to be it. Gay, dance music, black, drag queen, 1980, 1979, give me a break. No way. By Sylvester never compromising his sexuality, did create a lot of problems. It was a directive from Fantasy Records to say, Sylvester, we want you and your image to be more like Teddy Pendergrass. They shot this like video with him in a suit and like little sports car. I was really tired, and he went along with it for a minute. For a minute. Sylvester's response to that was he came to this big, a, a really big, you know, gathering at Fantasy and kind of like made his entrance in I think a pink chiffon flowing gown and kind of like sashayed down the staircase and then blew a lot of people away. Took the elevator up to the president's office and uh, marched in and said, you know, you want to change my image? This is my image and it's what has been and always will be. And that is why I wanted to end today's episode talking about Sylvester. Because Sylvester, for all of the amazingness of Divine, Divine was um, not openly gay in most interviews until very, very late um, because she knew it would be bad for her career and took the advice of her manager about it being bad for her career. So she kind of avoids it and sometimes talks about bisexuality uh, until later on. Whereas Sylvester was some was is the only person here who absolutely hit the mainstream and never gave up one iota of who he was as uh, someone in drag as a performer, as a gay black man, and took humongous risks to do so. It would have been so much easier for Sylvester to have said, yes, let's go ahead and sell me as Teddy Pendergrass, which is what Fantasy Records wanted to do at the time. They wanted to create his image basically as, you know, a suit-wearing, short-haired, cool, hot black guy. And Sylvester resisted that and showing up at a record label in the late seventies in a, in a gown and winning that battle, staying at that record label, continuing to make hits and continuing to be able to stand by that. That is a humongous testament. That is a, that is an absolute testament to Sylvester's talent, Sylvester's will and Sylvester's perseverance through every ounce of bullshit that the world ever presented him to still become a heroic icon who would be someone who is a beacon for queer performers for eons afterwards still today and that's where i kind of want to wrap things up today the takeaway points that i want you to have for today really is that you know anybody who tells you that bearded drag or alternative drag or any kind of drag that's outside the norm is somehow new, that trash drag is new, 
that any any kind of thing that we're talking about today is new, send them to this episode because that's literally factually incorrect. And anyone who's trying to proclaim that any of these things are brand new and somehow disrupting all of drag or that bearded queens are lazy, I heard recently, this is all just bananas. But I also really want you to see how drag really has been truly pivotal in the histories of film, in the history of theater, the visual arts, photography, punk and disco music, commune life in the 60s in Haight-Ashbury. The list goes on. And I want you to see how truly interconnected all of these performers are in these different scenes and how influential major figures in the queer scene are on one another. Because I think it's also really important to look at drag qua drag within itself. So that said, I think it is time for me to wrap up this episode because it is super long and overdue. So thank you all so much for listening this month. This has been certainly my favorite episode by far. I'm really enjoying as we go forward the fact that there are more clips of things that I can actually play for you. So that's really fun and exciting. And I hope you all like this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're really enjoying learning all this stuff about drag history. So as always, keep it weird. Keep it queer, and I'll see you around next month on Untucking the Past. 